As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all the saints... Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me on this, the fifth week of Great and Holy Lent. I pray that you've all been having a blessed Lenten journey, and that the next week and a half of Lent, well, two and a half weeks, rather, is continually fruitful, edifying, and ultimately leads you to Christ and his coming resurrection. So last week, we spoke about chapter 3 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And during our breakdown of the chapter, we saw the story of St. John the Baptist from beginning to end. And we also saw at the very end of the chapter, the baptism of Jesus, when the Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, and the Father proclaims him to be his beloved Son with whom he's pleased. Now, when we pick up here in chapter 4, we're going to see a direct continuation of this chapter. Because from Jesus' baptism, through the theophany of who he is as being one of the Holy Trinity, fully one with the Father and with the Spirit, he will be driven out by that same Spirit into the wilderness. And we're going to see this continued motif of Christ being full of the Spirit, in the same way that the prophets of old were full of the Holy Spirit. But the difference that we're going to have with Jesus and the prophets is that for the prophets, the Spirit seemed to come and go. There were moments where they were full of the Holy Spirit, and then there were moments where they weren't receiving that same inspiration. Yet throughout this whole chapter, we're going to see as a through line, as Jesus goes from place to place while he begins his ministry, he goes in the power of the Spirit. So this shows us how the Holy Spirit works within the world, because it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's through the embodiment of that person, of the Holy Trinity, that all good is made manifest in the world. And it's in that same way that we see Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, one of the Holy Trinity, participate within the world. Is everything that he does is through the power of the Spirit, guided by the Father. And since Jesus is the Son of the Father, he is constantly pointing us back to him and back to his kingdom. This is how that relationship plays out. Because the Spirit, again, is a person of the Holy Trinity. He's not a power. 
He's not separate in some way. Rather, he's working as one with the Father and the Son. And the reason why I bring this up is because this is very unique to St. Luke. There's an emphasis placed on the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works within the other Gospels, and yet it might be easy for us to miss. But here, clear as day, we see this overemphasizing of the Spirit. Luke is hitting the point home to us. He's letting us know over and over again that the Spirit is constantly at play. And the reason for that is because once we get to the book two, the book of Acts, we're going to see it's that same spirit that descends upon the church, all of us, at Pentecost. And it's through the power of that same spirit that we too are sent out as the body of Christ, as the church. So with all that out of the way, we're going to move to verse 1 of chapter 4 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, for forty days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing in those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I shall be yours. it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge over you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So what we see here is immediately after Jesus is baptized, after he is filled with the Holy Spirit, showing us again this prophetic motif. In like manner with the prophets of old, Jesus is sent out. And in being sent out, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, what we see happen within the wilderness is that Jesus is tempted, tempted by the devil, tempted by Satan. And the devil, well, the word devil, diabolos, is the cast down one. And Satan, the word Satan, is the adversary. So the adversary, who we saw first in the book of Job, has been cast down. That's why this term devil is used over and over again. And we'll hear Jesus again affirm this when he sends out the multitudes and they come back and talk about the power that they've been given. And he will say, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan be cast down. So this cast down spirit, this chief of the evil spirits here, who was just a mere tempter when we last saw him in the Old Testament, a tempter of Job during his suffering, 
is now in this greater adversarial role. And if you want to understand a little bit more on the difference of Satan, the devil, and demons, spirits, and whatnot within the scriptures, there's a wonderful podcast called Lord of Spirits that Father Stephen DeYoung and Father Andrew Stephen Damick do that I highly recommend. In fact, Father Stephen DeYoung is a great influence on me and what we're doing here with our Bible study. So if you want to hear from somebody who's has a higher caliber of education than I do, and I think speaks a lot more eloquently than I do, you can look to his commentaries on the Gospel according to St. Luke as seen in his podcast, The Whole Council of God. But regardless of all of that, we see that the tempter, the cast down one, the adversary, is now doing battle with Christ. Because after Christ fasts for 40 days, after Christ has been guided by the Spirit to be tempted in the wilderness, he is hungry. So the devil says to him, if you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. This is very similar to the temptation of Adam that caused humanity to fall. Because Adam didn't have access to any of the other temptations that we're going to see within this account. The only temptation that could cause Adam to fall, since it was just him and Eve, and they had full dominion over the creation within the Garden of Eden, was through his stomach, was through his lust for knowledge. And so Satan tests Christ, the new Adam, in the same way that the old Adam fell. He tells him, turn this rock into bread. And now Jesus is hungry. He's experiencing a natural human feeling. If we were to go out into the wilderness and not eat for 40 days, we'd be pretty hungry too. And yet Jesus tells the devil, if you are the oh, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Here, Jesus, the Christ, is quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And it's from the book of Deuteronomy that he will continue to quote in these next two sections. But this is important for us because in quoting the book of Deuteronomy to the devil, what we see is that the warfare which he's carrying out is not a warfare of his own intellect. Rather, he's clinging to the words of the Father. He's clinging to the words of God in his response. He's not trying to show the devil that he's intellectually, spiritually, or physically superior through his own means, but rather he's constantly pointing back towards the Father, the Father whom he's one with. This is a motif that we see over and over again through Jesus. In his title of son, he is constantly pointing us back to the Father. That's why we identify Jesus as the Son, because he is constantly trying to lead us back into this Edenic state, the state that we were in in the very beginning in Genesis when we were able to walk one-on-one -on -one with God within the garden. This is something that was impossible except for a select few within the Old Testament. And yet in the Incarnation, in God becoming man, we see that this is now made possible through the Son of God. 
And yet the temptation continues. The devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall be yours. So the devil gives Christ a vision of all of the kingdoms of the world. This is not something that we can think of in terms of a specific time. He didn't just take him up to a high place and reveal to him all of the kingdoms that he could see as far as the eye can see. There's a deeper level to this. He showed him all of the kingdoms at a point in time. So he showed him all of the kingdoms throughout human history. And then he says to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. You see, Jesus doesn't, in his response, as we'll see in verse 8, where he tells him, is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. He doesn't rebuke the devil and say, no, that's not yours. And that should give us a hint at a deep theological understanding of well, who is the ruler of this age. If we remember that motif that we were talking about back in the Gospel according to St. Mark, of this age versus the Messianic age that is coming Christ, this age represents the world that is corrupted by sin, the world that is corrupted by our deviations from the way the world was intended to be. And if we think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, which we'll get to eventually, they are given a distinct role. Humanity, Adam and Eve, within the garden, are called to be priests of creation. So they're called to be ministers of the created order, taking care of it because God has given it into their hands. Yet they're also called to be kings and queens of that creation, ruling over it nobly and making sure that's guided in the proper direction. And they're also called for a third status, and that status is of prophets. In the prophetic role is to know God, is to commune with God, ultimately, so the priestly and the kingly can take place. Because if rule, the rule of humanity that is given to us by God, is done detached from him, then we're serving another master. And if our ministry is detached from God, then it's no ministry at all. Yet what we see in the fall of humanity is that this kingly role that God had given to both Adam and Eve is thrown away. It's cast aside for nothing more than mere food. And so when we come here to this section where the devil says, all of these things, all of these kingdoms that I've shown to you, I will give to you because I have been given charge over them and I can give them to whoever I will? Well, he's saying that because we, humanity, continue to give the devil authority. The devil has no power. In fact, Satan has been cast down as we see in his name of devil. He's cast out. He's thrown out of the kingdom. 
and he cannot create. He can only divide. That's why he is the adversary. And yet when we align our will with his, what we see is that we push the world into further distortion. We push our lives into further distortion and the lives of others. But when we ally our will with the will of God, as we saw with Mary when she proclaimed herself the slave of the Lord, allowed for Christ to be born of her, raised him and offered him up so he could carry out his ministry. And now as we see in Jesus fully participating the will with the Father, when we align ourselves with the will of the Father, we slowly reorient the world back towards its intended Edenic state, the intended state that it was always meant to be in. Because that state is in a place of peace and in a place where the Father, where God, is made manifest always. He's not hidden from us. He's not in some veil. And the reason why he's hidden from us, the reason why we can't see him always, is because, again, it's so easy for us to fall into sin. It's so easy for us to deviate from the way. And the further we spiral, the further we go. Yet as we've talked about time and time again during this Bible study, we always have the ability to right the ship. We always have the ability to reorient towards him and repent. And this is the gift that Christ has given us because it's through embodying his characteristic that that is made possible. And this is why Jesus says from the book of Deuteronomy, again, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We are called to serve the Lord. We are not called to serve our passions, our wants, or our desires. Because when we serve our passions, when we serve our wants, and when we serve our desires, well, what happens is we end up serving a different master. And that master cannot create. He can only divide. I think it's also important here to talk about fasting and why Jesus is being tempted in this way after he's fasted for so long. When we deprive ourselves from food, say if we do it for two days, maybe three, what we find is that the body has some very interesting mechanisms to keep us going. Day one can be miserable. Day one feels like you're starving to death because you have all of these sensors in your brain saying, I need food, I need food. And yet when day two comes around, you start to enter into some form of equilibrium. And when day three comes around, there's a lot of cognitive clarity that comes into play. Your body has entered a new state and it can stay in that state for a prolonged period of time. If you want to think about this biologically, think about our ancestors who would be hunting for food on the plane. Well, they didn't always have food to eat. And yet they were able to survive based off of the reserved stores of nutrients that we save in body fat and whatnot. The reason why I'm bringing all of this up is because when you hit that state of equilibrium, when you haven't eaten for a while, you gain a new perspective. And that perspective is just how dependent you are 
on God and how dependent you are on all of these basic necessities that you need that are constantly provided for you. You think that you need to satiate yourself constantly. You think that you're starving if you've gone a couple of hours without eating. And yet when you get to day three, you find, I can go further. And when you've done that, what you may also find is that there is a clarity in the separation from the things that rule you, the things that rule your stomach. And in that same vein, through Jesus, again, is fully God and fully man, separating himself from food, he is given this new perspective. He's given this clarity. And yet in that clarity, who does he see? He doesn't see the Father face to face right here in the wilderness. Rather, he sees his demons. He sees the devil. And that's how he does warfare with him. Because in the same vein, when we fast, when we practice this ascetical struggle, our demons, the things that hold us back in this life, become highlighted. And so we see in verse 9, that the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And here in verse 10 we see the devil quotes scripture. From the book of Psalms, he says, he will give his angels charge over you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on the stone. And yet Jesus, in verse 12, responds to the devil. It is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. This again is from the book of Deuteronomy. And we see here, after the simple proclamation by Jesus, the devil ended every temptation. So there are more temptations that took place that are not written here. That's why we see every temptation being highlighted. So when he ended every temptation, he departed from him. But it's not for long as we see he departed until an opportune time. In Jesus saying, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, after the devil is saying, okay, let's play around here. Like, if you are truly the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. This is what the scriptures say, isn't it? When the devil tests Christ in this way, he shows us the same way that we can distort the scriptures. We can quote various verses from the Bible, and we can use them to prove points. And yet, I'm hoping, after all of these months of walking through the scriptures, we're starting to see that we can't just extract aspects of the Bible and say that that's the whole of our worldview. We need to understand the whole of the scriptures, the message that's at its very core, the message that God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and became man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. This is what we believe. This is what is at the core of our faith. So when we, too, take various quotes from the scriptures and beat people over the head with them, because they prove our point. 
we are doing the same thing that Satan is doing here with Christ. And this is why Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Because if we are tempting God, if we are testing him and prodding at him, then we are not truly participating in his will. We are not truly attempting to believe. Rather, our belief will then be founded upon various proofs. And yet, if God is a person, if we are entering into a relationship with him, then we cannot build him in our own image. We cannot try to understand God through the way that we understand each other. In the same way that you can't look at another human being and say, I fully grasp every aspect of you and I'm going to put you in this box. If we can't do that with one another, if we can't do that with a simple creature, in a sense, that one day is born and one day returns to the earth, then how are we supposed to do that with the creator of all? This is why you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And after this, the tempting is done. And Jesus' ministry can fully begin as we move to verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and the report concerning him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So what we see here is the beginning of Jesus' ministry starts in Galilee where he returns in the Spirit. And from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the report concerning him starts to go out through all the surrounding country. So his fame is starting to be made manifest. And in verse 15, we see that he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is a constant motif that we're going to see, especially in this chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Because Jesus, everywhere that he goes, on the Sabbath, will first glorify God. He will come into the proper place to teach. This is how he begins his ministry, by going into the synagogue and teaching as was the practice. And this is important because it shows us that Jesus, at least at the beginning of his ministry, was not some person standing on the street corner telling everyone to repent because the end was nigh. There was a person who did that. That was St. John, and he was crying out in the wilderness. But John's ministry is over. And rather, Jesus' ministry is calling people back to the Father, back through the law, which, he'll later say, has been fulfilled, has been filled to its brim within him. So that's why he goes into the synagogue. And yet we see that the people are glorifying him. And we see his fame as he's in Galilee continue to grow. But this will shift in the next section. Because when Jesus goes to his hometown, when he goes to Nazareth, we will see the response of the people is very different. So in verse 16 we hear, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as his custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him 
the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So what we see here is Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he was born, well, rather, where he was raised. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. We just talked about that in verses 14 and 15. And as he was continually doing, he's called up to read, he's called up to teach. And he's given the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, the fact that the book is identified here as a book tells us that what Jesus is reading is from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, because the Hebrew Scriptures were written out in scrolls, for the most part, in their original language, where we see here a book is clearly articulated. Now, this has a symbolic meaning, and that again is that Jesus is speaking to the broader world. He's not only speaking to the children of Israel. He's speaking to a world that speaks Greek because the broader Roman Empire spoke Greek. Now, on official matters, the language that was used was Latin, but for the most part, the common language at that time was the Greek language. And you can go down numerous rabbit holes of the Septuagint versus the Hebrew translations of the Old Testament, which we're not going to go down here. But what's important to highlight is that the point St. Luke is making is that this message, this message that we're going to hear from the book of Isaiah, is first of all deliberate. So Jesus opens the book and finds the passage that will best describe what it is he's doing. And the way that he does it, by using this specific language, if we look close enough, is cluing us in to the fact that this message is universal. This message is for everybody. It's not just for the children of Israel. So we hear, in the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So as we saw in Jesus' baptism, clearly the spirit of the Lord is upon him. In fact, St. Luke makes the point that it's descended in bodily form. It's seen, it's visible. There's the Spirit. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. This is that same anointing that we saw with the Spirit descending upon Jesus. But when he says he has anointed me, what we hear is that Jesus is the Christ, because the Christ is the anointed one. The Christ is the anointed king. But we see here that the role of the anointed king is to preach the good news, the evangelion, the gospel, to the poor. So who are the poor? Well, the poor aren't only those who have low financial needs, but the poor are any that have not received this good news. So Christ has come to share the good news of salvation with us. 
we are the poor, even sitting here today. And as we experience God, as we experience this good news being presented to us, we receive more and more wealth. Because our wealth ultimately is sourced within this relationship to God. But we also see, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The captives are all those oppressed by sin. The captives are all those who are in the snares of the evil spirits. Because a spirit, as we'll mention a little bit later, but I think it's important to make the point here, is an animating principle. It's the force behind something. And when we see an evil spirit at play, well, what do we see? We see an evil animating principle. We see some evil force that is moving us in that direction. And when we are guided by an evil spirit rather than the Holy Spirit, we become captives. We become blind and need somebody to bestow upon us sight. And through the coming of Christ, our captivity is liberated. Our oppression is gone. Rather, we are given an opportunity to be able to have a life in him because he has come to proclaim the messianic kingdom. It's here, as we heard last week when we talked about the message of St. John. This is the acceptable year of the Lord because we are now able to be participants in the age that is to come well, we're also still in this age. Now we see in verse 20, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scriptures has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard and you did in Capernaum, do here also in your own country. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. When they came, a great famine over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none other than, none but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in that time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. But passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So we see Jesus closes the book. He has this dramatic moment where the book is slammed shut. <laughs> we want to think about it that way. And all of the people, as he sits down, are kind of dumbfounded. They're looking at him, and they're fixed on him. 
And he begins to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's showing that this prophecy, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has been anointed to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. These words from the book of Isaiah, along with all of the other words that are not recorded here that Jesus said in his preaching, these are fulfilled in him. These are filled to their brim in the coming of Jesus. And all spoke well of him, we see. And they wonder at his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And yet we see here a questioning begin. We see here in verse 22, a questioning of, isn't this Joseph's son? This is a callback again to what we saw in the gospel according to St. Mark when Jesus was in his homeland. Because referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, as he was in the gospel according to St. Mark, casts a shadow of doubt on the legitimacy, we'll say, of his lineage. And the same thing seems to be at play here. Even though he's identified as Joseph's son, they're asking, in a sense, well, where does his authority lie? Where does his authority come from? He can't be the Messiah. He's not noble. He's not truly of the line of David. And he says to them, a proverb, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, he says, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here also in your own country. So physician, heal yourself. Reveal to us some signs so that we may know that you are truly this figure. You are truly the Christ. We're hearing about all of these things that you've done. As we see his ministry began in Galilee, and the word about it went out throughout all the surrounding country. So these people have heard rumblings of what Jesus is doing. And now they're testing him. They're testing the Lord their God. Yet Jesus says in verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when there came a great famine over all of the land, and Elijah was sent to none other than, than Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So what we see here is that no prophet is accepted in their own hometown. And why is that? Well, it's because here are the people that seem to perceive themselves as knowing Jesus the best. They've grown up with him. They've possibly raised him or helped to raise him. And yet, in all of their presuppositions of who he is, they were not even able to scratch the surface. And when the day came that his true call was made manifest, when the day came that Jesus reveals himself to the broader land, to us, humanity, these people, his kindred, his family, they can't fully grasp this. Isn't it Jesus, the son of Joseph? So Jesus uses this example here of Elijah when the heavens are blocked up and it can't rain. There's a massive famine. Well, who does Elijah come to? He comes to Zarephath, 
in the land of Sidon to a woman who is a widow in a Gentile land. And we see here in verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, the disciple of Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. So he hammers this point home. God in the Old Testament has still revealed himself through mighty works to the Gentiles. And just because we have some birthright, just because we have a lineage, doesn't mean that we're given this nobility. Because the nobility of being children of God comes with work. It comes with struggle. And it comes from us holding up our end of the bargain, as we talked about last week. We read today the covenant between Abraham and God. And within that covenant, we see that there are specific laws, there are specific things that need to be carried out by the children of God. This is what we'll see later on with Moses, where the law is expounded upon. And yet, there's this heavy emphasis on blood. There's this heavy emphasis on lineage tying us to this distinct role. But we often forget that the role of the children of Israel was not to just pray for themselves, was not just to worship God for the sake of worshiping God, but rather they offered sacrifices, they prayed for the world as the specific chosen people of God. So in being chosen, that didn't mean they were automatically saved. Rather, that meant that they had a special calling, they have a special work to do. And in the coming of Christ, in this prophecy that he shows us of both Elijah and Elisha, he shows that that call is not only for the Jewish people, it's also for the Gentile, with which we are. So we see in verse 28, when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So they were just wondering. They were just happy. They were looking at all the gracious words out of his mouth. And yet, now Jesus tells them something they don't want to hear. He tells them, hey, wake up. Realign yourself. Repent. Return to the Father. And yet, what happens? They're filled with a spirit of wrath. And they rise up, and they put him out of the city. And that wasn't enough. Because after they cast him out of the city, after they cast Jesus out of his own hometown, what happens? Well, they throw him up to the brow of a hill, and they try to throw him off of that hill headlong. So they try to kill Jesus. Here we see a potent example of what can happen even in the closest family unit when what we are called to do in our life in Christ conflicts with others' presuppositions of what we're supposed to be doing. Because Jesus, again, has been raised by these people. He's grown up with these people. He's been doing all that was called of him up until this point. But now it is time for him to make his authority manifest. Now it is time for him to reveal the acceptable day of the Lord to all the people. And that comes with him having to manifest truth and stand in truth 
And yet, when his family members, for all intents and purposes, are confronted with this truth, what are they filled with? They're not filled with remorse, repentance, or desire to understand it more fully. Rather, they're filled with wrath, and they try to kill him. But we see here, in verse 30, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, oftentimes, this can seem like a very strange verse, and there's been a lot of attention placed on it. But theologically, we need to ask ourselves what's happening here. It's not the acceptable time for Christ to offer his life for the life of the world. That time is going to come, but it's not at the very beginning of his ministry. So it doesn't have to be very descriptive of how he avoids death. But the point is made by St. Luke here that he passes through. The mob that has surrounded him does not get their way. And so he's able to move on from that place and continue his ministry until the day when he offers his life for the life of the world. So he's not avoiding death. Rather, he's showing to us that his death will come at a time that's proper and right. So moving on to verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum in the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. And the report of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So we see that Jesus descends into Capernaum. And this motif of descent is going to be important for what we're about to see. Again, he's returning to the region of Galilee. And he's teaching them on the Sabbath in the synagogue. As again, was the custom that we saw him carrying out. And all the people are astonished. They can't believe his teachings. Because he's speaking these words authoritatively. There seems to be something deeper about the words that he's saying. But we see here in the synagogue, there's a man who had a spirit, an unclean demon. And there's a reason why unclean is used here before the word demon. And it's because a demon was just known as a spirit. If we think about Socrates, we hear Socrates talking about his demon, his, that guiding voice that he has. So for a Greek-speaking people, if we were just to say a demon, well, they wouldn't know if that would have a positive or a negative connotation. So St. Luke adds the phrase, the spirit of an unclean demon. And we see what does this demon do? What does this spirit do? Well, he cries out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here is the first acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And it's from an unclean spirit. 
And the acknowledgement of the Spirit is within fear. And this shows us that in the coming of the Messiah, the battle has already been won. All that these spirits can do is fight for a moment, lash out, as we're going to see when Jesus rebukes him and tells him to be silent and come out of him, and then the demon throws him down into the midst and he comes out of him, having done him no harm. All that these spirits can do when confronted with the Lord, with Christ, is lash out for a moment. But ultimately, they have no power. And this again shows us that these negative spirits, these negative forces in the world, when confronted with Christ, when confronted with the Creator, the ultimate ordering principle, if you will, they do not even exist. They can't hold a candle to him. And Jesus tells the demon, be silent, and then come out of him. We'll see the silence motif come out again at the end of this chapter. But the reason why he silences the spirit is for the same reason that Satan can distort the scriptures. So if the evil one can distort the scriptures and our understanding of them, then if it is not the proper time for the Messiah to be fully revealed, well, this unclean spirit can try to hold on a little longer by distorting who Jesus is to the people. It's through his tongue that temptation and our destruction takes place. It's this subtle hinting, this subtle pulling. And so, Jesus silences him and tells him to come out. Remember, Capernaum is this low place. Jesus has come down. And this man is thrown down again by this demon. He's cast down into the midst of the people. But then, he is free. Then he is liberated. Then he is raised up. In this descent motif that we see, we see a prefiguration of the descent that Christ will make on Pascha. Because in the descent that Christ makes on Pascha, we see him also raising us up on the third day with him. So when Christ descends into Capernaum and casts this evil spirit, this unclean spirit, out of this man and raises him up, He's prefiguring what he's going to do for at least the masculine half of humanity. And I mention the masculine because we'll see in the next and final section the feminine highlighted. But before we move on to that, we have to look at the response of the people. They're all amazed and say to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. We see this motif that was again highlighted over and over again within the Gospel according to St. Mark. Jesus constantly exercises his authority and his power. And what we've seen so far is that he's pointing us back to where that power comes from. That power comes from the Father. And he carries out that power through the Spirit. And that authority is given to him by the Father and participated in within the Spirit. He's constantly pointing us back to this Trinitarian model. And even though the people don't have this Trinitarian theology, 
they can still tell that there's something different here about this man. He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely a teacher. He will be revealed to them to be the Son of God. And it's for that reason that the report of him continues to go out into every place in the surrounding region. So moving on to verse 38. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and served them. So what we see is the introduction of Simon, Simon Peter, who in the gospel according to St. Mark had already been, been introduced up to this point. But here we see his first introduction. And he's introduced with a theme of hospitality behind him. Simon invites Jesus into his home. Jesus arises and goes to Simon's home. Yet when Simon comes to his house, he remembers his mother-in-law is very ill. She has a very high fever. So the banquet has been set. Jesus, the bridegroom, has entered the house. And yet one of the members of the family, one of the people in that household, is not able to be a participant in the banquet. So all of the people in the house, including Peter, seek Christ's healing. They says they besought her, besought him regarding her. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes and he stands over her. Again, we talked about in this last section in the descent down to Capernaum, this motif of a lowly place and being raised up. So Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever. It's very important here to realize that St. Luke, as a physician, is using what would have been a technical term here. He's not calling the fever a demon. He clearly, in this prior section, used unclean spirit, a demon, in a very specific context. And yet, because this world is, over, uh, is ruled over by corruption, well, again, a fever is governed, in a sense, by this negative principle. A fever is not something that is natural from an intended state. Rather, it's natural here in our fallen state. It's a reaction of the body to some type of contagion. But this was not the way that we were intended to be. We were not intended to suffer in these ways. Yet when Jesus comes and rebukes the fever, what is he doing? Well as we see by the fever leaving her. When Jesus, the creator of all, this ultimate ordering principle comes into contact with distortion, that distortion is reintegrated and reordered immediately. But what does Peter's mother-in-law do after the fever leaves her? We hear immediately she rose and served them. Christ came to serve rather than to be served. And he calls each and every one of us to do the same thing. So when we look at the response of Peter's mother-in-law, 
we see the call of each of us when we are given some great grace by the Lord. We see here that all of humanity between chapter verses 31 to verse 39 is lifted up. Because the masculine and the feminine have both been brought up from this lowered place. In the same way that in the resurrection icon, we will see equally Christ pulling Adam and Eve up from the grave by their wrists. And yet, what we see in the example of Peter's mother-in-law is that when we are given this great gift, when Christ reveals the glory that's in front of us to us, we are then called to serve as he has served us. So moving on to verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow for them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So we see a continuation of this motif. Jesus, as the sun is setting, we see, is confronted by all the people in the surrounding area who bring their kindred, who bring their sick and demon-possessed to him. All of those who are overcome by distortion. And just through his laying on of hands, just through coming into contact with Jesus the Christ, we see that they are returned to their proper state. We see that illness and possession have no bounds when confronted with the creator of all. In the same way that when he is going to descend into death on Pascha, which is coming up, we will see that death doesn't even have an equation for what happens. Because when the architect of life enters into death, all that happens is death is literally destroyed in him and we are offered life eternal. It's the same shadow that we're seeing here. Because as Jesus lays his hands on those who are sick, and they are healed, we don't see some magical process taking place. Rather, we see these individuals who are overcome with the distortions of this world reintegrated into the way that they were intended to be through this direct contact with the Lord. And we see the same thing happen with him casting out all of these demons. So finally, we hear in verse 42, And when it was the day, <clears throat> when it was the day, he prepared and went into a lonely place. He departed and went to a lonely place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for a purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So what we see here is the next day, so when it was day, since the sun was setting in the prior section, Jesus goes to a lonely place, similar to the lonely place that we found him at the very beginning of this whole chapter. And yet, when he goes to that lonely place, all of the people are seeking after him. All of the people run out in faith into this desolate land. 
And yet, they desired to keep him. They desired to allow for him to stay with them. But Jesus says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. We cannot hide the joy of Christ under a basket or under a bushel. Rather, his light needs to be put on a lampstand for the world to see. This is the message that Jesus is giving to the people. He is in a desolate place. He is in a lonely place. A place that would have required struggle for these people to come out to. And yet, they still chase after him. They have this yearning. They have this desire to be in his presence. But they don't quite understand what he is called to do. Because the people want to keep him. The people want him to just minister to them there in Galilee. And yet Jesus says that he needs to go and preach the good news, this universal message to others. It's not enough for that message to only be given to one people. So again, we need to remember that this is the motif that's playing out. The gospel message is not only to be given to the worthy, the people of God, the children of Israel. Rather, it's to be shared with all the nations. Yet we see here, after Jesus says, as for this purpose that he was sent, in verse 44, he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So he leaves. He continues to teach in this proper way. He goes to the place of teaching to tell the people of the gospel, to tell the people this great news. But the message has to continue. The message will continually be spread. Because even though we might want to hold on to it, even though we might want to keep it as ours alone, it is meant to be shared, is meant to be spread throughout the whole world. Because the good news that Jesus brings with him is not merely some glad tiding of something great that happened. It's like, oh, our friend Jesus showed up, so now we're really happy. That'd be great. Sure, your friend Jesus is a great guy, but you need to give me more. You need to tell me what is the depth of this person, of Jesus, who we know is the Christ, the Son of God. So the good news that he's bringing is an evangelion. It's an announcement of a victory over his enemies. And who are the enemies? Well, the enemies are these unclean spirits who are governing this world. Satan, the devil. And yet, what we see is when they're confronted with him, they have no ultimate power. When Jesus confronts our illnesses, when Jesus confronts these possessions, all is reoriented, reintegrated into the way that it was always intended to be. I think it's also important for us to realize the term miracle is not used in the Gospels. These are works. These are wonders. And to be fair, the word from Latin that we get miracle from means awe. It means wonder. Yet, within our modern translation, our modern understanding of what a miracle is, we think of magic, really. 
we think of something supernatural happening that is outside of the realm of possibility within this world. Where that's not the case, a work or a wonder is rather a reintegration through Christ towards the world becoming more like it was supposed to be from the very beginning. That's why Jesus is doing these works. That's why Jesus is performing these wonders. He's reorienting not only us as individuals, but even our infirmities, so that way we can be full participants in the life that we were called to live, so we can walk with God in the garden as equals, as Adam and Eve did in Genesis. And all of this is now made possible through the Incarnation, through Jesus, the Son of God. So now, as we enter the fifth and final week of our Lenten journey, I pray that we all be given strength to continue the fast, to be able to define further our relationship with Christ, so that way when we celebrate his raising from the dead on Pascha, we may have a more full understanding of what that means, not only in the span of our church life, but how this raising from the dead, how this resurrection affects the whole of our life, the whole world that we live in, and how we are called to participate in it. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. Next week, we will not be meeting in person since we will be joining our brothers and sisters in the Weston Parish for pre-sanctified liturgy. But we will still have a pre-recorded session uploaded on the following Friday. So until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near the Christ and make his path straight. Amen.